It's Tuesday, December 2nd. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The airline industry has taken a huge hit during the pandemic, and some of the declines could be permanent. A new analysis says that business travel could be permanently cut by 36%, and that could also affect the way you travel. Regular consumers could see higher ticket prices and reduce routes to some of your favorite places. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at the Wall Street Journal, joins us for more. Next, a bipartisan group of senators has proposed a $908 billion stimulus plan that they hope could break the logjam in Congress. The plan provides some relief for small businesses and some benefits for unemployed workers, but does not include direct stimulus payments to Americans. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at the Washington Post, joins us for what's in the latest stimulus plan. Finally, we are getting some information on how children have been faring during the pandemic amid shutdowns and remote learning. It seems that kids have been doing well and consistent when it comes to reading, but have been slowing down when it comes to math. Researchers say that parents are more comfortable helping kids with reading than with math assignments. Leslie Brody, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal, joins us for how math progress has slowed. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. There is a lot of low fare competition out there. About 20% of the U.S. market now is flown by low-cost airlines, and they're, they're going to be in the sweet spot. They're not going to be interested in raising prices necessarily, but there is going to be strong demand for leisure travel, I think. Joining us now is Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Scott. Good to be with you, Oscar. I wanted to talk about the pandemic and its ongoing effect on the airline industry. Your latest column talks about how business travel could be cut by about 36%, and this would be permanently. And this has all sorts of ripple effects for the airlines themselves, for regular travelers such as myself and you listening at home and all. So tell us a little bit about how you came to this number, and then let's get into some of those ripple effects, what it means to everybody else. This started with a group of, um, a really sort of eclectic group of airline industry people who started meeting regularly as almost sort of a support group, just people isolated in the pandemic who are involved in the airline industry. And they invited me to join them. Um, One's a consultant, one's a former CEO, one's a consumer advocate. And as we talked through these issues of what were going to be the lasting changes, we were really frustrated that there wasn't good data on what might be the impact of changes in business travel patterns. So we decided to go find it ourselves and did a whole lot of research and really looked at the purposes of business travel. There's a lot of data out there about how much people spend on business travel and stuff, but not not so much a breakdown of what are you going for? Because what you're going for really impacts whether that trip could be replaced with uh, technology or not. And so we came up with a pretty good breakdown of how much of business travel is conferences and meetings, how much is intra-company training sessions and all, how much is sales calls and things like that. And then in seven different categories, looked at what could be replaced with Zoom meetings, Skype meetings, in any kind of digital technology. And that led us to say, at a minimum, 
We think 19% of all business trips are permanently gone because of the changes in the way business is done, and at a maximum, 36%. And 36%, that's a big number. That's a, a third of you know all business travel, and that would have a huge impact on airlines and travel. And as you mentioned, what can be replaced with technology when the pandemic hit very hard and businesses had to transition to this work-from-home model? It happened very quickly, but we also realized that we can do it and do it very effectively. So a lot of these training sessions, things like that, can be relegated to these virtual events rather than having to fly people out. And so what is the consequence of that if business travel is reduced by that much? And in some cases, you mentioned it could be permanently. What does that mean for regular consumers? At big airlines like American, Delta, and United, business travelers essentially subsidize vacationers, subsidize cheap tickets. Uh, you can think of it as the people in the front of the airplane basically pay more than the people in the, in the back of the airplane. And if there are fewer people in the front of the airplane willing to pay higher prices, then the people in the back of the airplane presumably would have to pay more. So I think you'll, you'll see airlines try and raise leisure fares. Now, that's very difficult to do for two reasons. One is there is a lot of low fare competition out there. About 20% of the U.S. market now is flown by low-cost airlines, and they're, they're going to be in the sweet spot. They're not going to be interested in raising prices necessarily, but there is going to be strong demand for leisure travel, I think. And the other part of it is that people who travel on their own are very price sensitive. And so if you raise prices too much, you can really dampen demand with that. I think the other change that happens is that you'll see fewer flights in schedules. A lot of airlines build a lot of frequencies into their schedule because that's what appeals to business travelers. 12 flights a day to New York, that kind of thing. If you have a robust schedule, then you can attract business travelers with it. Well, if there's less demand for business travel, then I think you see schedules shrink, and that takes options away from travelers, takes seats out of markets. And so to New York, to Los Angeles, to Chicago, to Dallas, to big business travel markets, there might be fewer flights in the future. One of the people that you spoke to kind of compared what's going on with the airline industry with what's happening to brick-and-mortar retail stores and how it's been devastated by e-commerce. Can you expand on that a little bit and kind of explain that analogy? Yeah, I think the, I think the, the parallels are pretty striking. You know, basically, out of pandemic necessity, certainly in e-commerce, the trends were changing anyway, right? We we're already ordering more and more stuff online. But with the pandemic... Very few people go to the mall anymore, and you just order from Amazon or from whoever. And people have gotten more comfortable with that. And so it changes people's patterns. There's going to be lost, lasting impact. And you can already see it in malls repurposing themselves because they're not going to have retail stores in the future and things like that. And I think the technology changes in business travel driven by, as you said, the necessity of the pandemic. But we've gotten more comfortable with that, and we found that it can be quite efficient. It's not going to replace everything. You're still going to need to go shake hands with your client and sign the deal and recruit the new business and all that kind of stuff. But what we found was there are lots of business trips that don't involve personal relationships, and those are easily replaced with technology, and it does get more efficient. People do get more comfortable with it. The technology is readily 
available to them. And if you can have a one-hour Zoom conference call with your client instead of a two-day business trip to spend an hour at lunch with them or whatever it might be, then you can become much more efficient with the technology. And so in that sense, I think it's the comfort and the efficiency that's the real parallel with retail. Scott McCartney, middle seat columnist at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. If you do nothing else, if you pass no other legislation, and you can only accomplish one thing during this lame duck session, it must be to pass the phase four relief package. Joining us now is Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thanks for joining us, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Wanted to talk about this new stimulus plan that was put out by a bipartisan group of senators. It's a plan coming in at $908 billion, far lower than some of the other stimulus plans we had been talking about before. But we heard some very familiar things right away. Well, we don't know if this has any chance of getting passed. One of the things that this plan does fail to have in it also is any uh, form of direct payments to Americans similar to that $1,200 that Americans got early on in the pandemic. So we'll see what happens with this. But Jeff, uh, help us walk through some uh, some of what we're learning about this plan. For weeks now, um, really months, congressional leaders, Mitch McConnell, Nancy Pelosi, working with the president, they've been unable to reach an agreement. And for a long time, we've been hearing a lot of simmering discontent from the rank and file senators, people who are not in leadership positions, but are in often cases sort of towards the center of their party. And over the last few weeks, as we're staring down the barrel of a horrific winter, they have gotten together and put their own plan together with this bipartisan proposal that includes some measures Democrats like and some measures Republicans like, but that is sort of far from the dream list of either party. It includes some money, $200 billion for states and cities, some money for small business relief through the Paycheck Protection Program, some unemployment benefits, $300 a week, but also a liability shield to protect businesses from lawsuits related to COVID that Democrats oppose. But as you mentioned, the odds of it passing seem pretty slim. It also does not include the $1,200 stimulus checks, another round of those that has been discussed at length. Some of the senators that are uh, involved in all this are uh, Joe Manchin, Mark Warner, Bill Cassidy, Mitt Romney, Susan Collins. So, uh, you know, some familiar names we hear, as you mentioned, when you're talking about centrist senators there. Jeff, tell us a little bit about where some of these roadblocks still remain. There were some things in this plan that, you know, some Democrats didn't want, such as the shield for some businesses. But where do the roadblocks really seem to be stemming from? We found out that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, he made clear that he wants to go a different route than this bipartisan compromise. He is circulating a separate plan that would spend far less than the $900 billion. In particular, McConnell is calling for spending less on unemployment, less on state and local aid, less in help for various programs like child care, rental assistance that Republicans previously backed and are now walking away from with Joe Biden set to assume the White House. So it seems pretty clear that Republicans are going to be a big obstacle to passing this bipartisan compromise. You mentioned one of the things that a lot of people were concerned about, unemployment benefits. You know, at the height of the pandemic, when this first went around, people were getting $600 per week in the framework that's set up for this bipartisan bill that's at $300 a week in federal unemployment benefits. And as you just mentioned, the Mitch McConnell plan would be less than that. 
have we gotten any word from zero zero is what oh, call appears to be calling for. zero okay yeah. wow so he would leave it up to the states completely on that front and so what have we heard from the white house on all of this because i've seen some tweets from the president saying hey congress needs to get some type of stimulus going but the president is going to be on his way out pretty soon have they offered any leadership on this front for weeks before the election, the president and his top aides pushed very aggressively to get a stimulus package done. I have been told by numerous sources that the White House has taken a hands-off backseat approach to stimulus since then. They are still negotiating, and Secretary Stephen Mnuchin is working with Congress, and they still are supportive of a deal. But certainly the urgency has gone down. So they seem to be certainly taking a backseat relative to what they were driving for before, and their position on this is, is certainly unclear, to put it mildly. What about President-elect Joe Biden? I've seen him saying, you know, if something is passed right now in the lame duck session, it's going to be a start. We're going to need more in the future when he comes on board. What else has he said regarding this plan? Today, Joe Biden said that help is on the way. And I'm curious how he can make that promise. (laughs) Um, They've been been working uh, on on this for so long now with no resolution you know, yeah, what's, what's going to change in January? It's not clear that Senate Republicans are going to make a deal with him, and yet he's out here promising that that's going to happen. I don't know what he is hearing or knows that we don't. It's possible that he knows something, but as far as I can tell, the odds of the stimulus package are as bleak as ever, and I'm not sure why that magically changes when he becomes president on January 20th, especially if Democrats lose the runoffs in Georgia. And, you know, this is needed more than ever right now. We're seeing signs that the economy is weakening a bit. We're seeing, uh, I think there was more people claiming unemployment right before Thanksgiving. And as you mentioned, you know, coronavirus is still around. We're going into a pretty tough winter, it seems like. And, you know, a lot more restrictions and lockdowns on businesses. You know, a lot of this financial aid is desperately needed in a lot of parts of the country. It's a pretty scary time that we're looking down. Not only is the coronavirus surging everywhere and we're starting to see a new wave of lockdowns in parts of the country, which will have severe economic impacts. We are also looking at the expiration of several critical programs that have helped buffer the uh, American working class in particular from some of the the more severe impacts. Eviction moratorium is going to expire at the end of the year. Benefits for tens of millions of people who have lost their jobs are going to expire by the end of the year. Protections for student borrowers are going to expire by the end of the year. Paid family leave program is going to expire by the end of the year. And the list just goes on and on and on. So a very scary time for the American economy and a lot of families. Jeff Stein, White House economics reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Their reading was about the same, and the researchers say that's likely because parents are much more comfortable reading to their kids at night, doing word games, helping them sound out words. A lot of parents are not as comfortable with math problems. Joining us now is Leslie Brody, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thanks for joining us, Leslie. Thanks for having me. We're starting to see how the school shutdowns have weighed in on uh, test results for our children There's some widely used assessment tests that show that reading achievement among kids has kind of stayed about the same, but math progress has not been doing so well for a lot of kids. So, Leslie, tell us a little bit about what these assessment tests do and what they're saying. They're called math assessments. They may be very familiar to lots of parents. They're given in in thousands of schools across the country, and they're usually given about three times a year. So when the researchers looked at how kids fared from last winter to this fall compared to 
kids in the same grades in prior years, their achievement had slowed down a bit in math. Not all that much, but enough to raise some concerns. Their reading was about the same, and the researchers say that's likely because parents are much more comfortable reading to their kids at night, doing word games, helping them sound out words. A lot of parents are not as comfortable with math problems or math games, especially (laughs) since the way that math is being taught now is different from the way a lot of parents learned. That's exactly what I was going to say right now. You know, I know the common core math way of teaching threw a lot of parents for a loop. And, you know, some of them even were kind of giving up at that point saying, I don't even understand how this is done. So for a lot of parents, obviously, it's kind of this new learning curve, having to relearn the math and then be able to help their kids. I can see how it poses a lot of difficulties there. But overall, it's not terrible news. And kind of have to hand it off to the teachers a little bit, you know, for doing a great job. As in your article, you quoted some saying they did a good job of not getting us to the worst case scenario, at least. True. And so did a lot of parents who were working very hard at home when their kids' schools shut down and caregivers and grandparents, they're doing a lot of help with their kids with remote learning. One issue with this study, though, is first, this is only about a very short-term impact. We don't know what the long-term impacts are going to be. But also, the authors of the study note that these results might be a little rosier than the actual case for several reasons. One is they could only look at schools that had given these tests both last year and this year, and that pool of schools is slightly more affluent and less urban than the national group. Further, when they looked at the kids who took the test last year and then this year, there were many kids who were missing, a high attrition rate. And many of the kids who were missing are low income and from disproportionately Black and Hispanic and low achieving. So it may be that many of the missing students are not really engaged in school right now. Maybe they have issues getting the technology so that if they were still remote, they couldn't take the test. We don't really know what's going on with the missing students, but that's another reason why this set of data may be a bit rosier than the true picture. Do they make any recommendations on what could possibly bring those scores up? You know, do they, Obviously, a lot of it does depend on the teachers and the parents spending time with kids, but do they make any type of recommendations or do they throw it all on this kind of back and forth of remote learning, in-person learning? Do, you know, do they make any re- recommendations on any of those fronts? This report was done by researchers, and I think it's their job to figure out what's going on, but it's the teachers and educators' job to figure out how to fix it. So I talked to a superintendent of a school district in North Carolina, and she was talking about some things that she was trying to do, like get local organizations to do more tutoring partnerships, consider a longer school year, consider a longer school day when school gets more back to normal. She's just trying to communicate better with parents about how they can help at home. I talked also to the National Council of Teachers of Mathematics, and they're trying to do a lot with their members to have more free resources online to help teachers get more materials and have like free professional development online to help teachers learn how to pivot better to online instruction for those in places where schools are still shut down, which is many places. And that group was also talking about how parents need to communicate with teachers and vice versa. If if either sees a child struggling, they have to work together to help a child get extra services if if that's possible. The kids shouldn't be just sort of struggling endlessly on their own. 
Leslie Brody, education reporter at The Wall Street Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. Take care. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.